Welcome to those that are joining us online for studies in the Bible. Those in the sanctuary, welcome. Those that are yet coming, we welcome everyone in the presence of God. It's good to be in the house of God. We're in the book of Exodus, and we're enjoying ourselves. This is our 11th study, so we're doing well. We've got about another 560 more before we can finish up, but we're doing very well. Lesson number 11. Remember what I told you on Sunday? That one of the methodologies that I use is to give you pieces and then we put it all together. I think it's a lot better than just saying, this verse means this. And you will find that as we're going through, I am also learning with you as well. And things are coming to me as we're teaching. So understand that I'm not trying to take, take you to Exodus chapter 1 and start reading and tell you it means this. My thought is, I think that's lazy. I think it's lazy for an instructor. It's also lazy for a learner. Some just tell me what it means. It, we become the little bird with its mouth open saying to mama bird, do what? Just drop something in my mouth. But Paul tells us, I think it's in, uh, I'm going to say 2 Timothy chapter 2. He invites all of us to study, to show ourselves approved. Every one of us, young and old, have a responsibility to study God's word. And that's what we're doing in, in here tonight and throughout these lessons. I'm going to just remind you of what we discussed last week. Here are the pieces. We're in the book of Exodus, and we saw, we gave you three pieces last week. We talked about Israel, and what did we say about Israel? We found out that in the Old Testament, Israel is God's son. And then begin to think broadly. So God has a son in the Old Testament, and that son is God's firstborn. And God's son is enslaved in the book of Exodus in Egypt. So God has a son, it's his firstborn, and his firstborn is in captivity. We also talked about Pharaoh. We saw this hard-hearted king, the one holding God's son and refusing to let God's son go. Get the picture? So God's son, his firstborn, They're also God's nation because they're growing, they're multiplying. So they're a nation, they're also God's son. And a hard-hearted king is holding them captive. And there's nothing, listen to this, that they can do to deliver themselves. Because if there was, they would have done it. You see the picture being painted? So God's son is enslaved. There's a hard-hearted king. They're enslaved in a region called Egypt. And there, they're in servitude to the hard-hearted king. The third piece I gave you was Moses. We introduced Moses. Moses is God's Messiah or God's deliverer. The word Messiah is the same word for Christ. The word Messiah means one who has been anointed. So a Messiah, it's a Hebrew term, is an anointed one. It's fair to to say then that Moses is God's Christ. Agreed? Moses is God's anointed one sent to do what? To deliver God's son. And ironically, Moses himself is also one of those children of Israel. So what you see is this dynamic of God's son being sent to deliver his sons. Does the story sound familiar? So God sends his son 
to deliver his sons out of captivity. And in the book of Exodus, what you actually see in Old Testament picture, John 3.16, for God so that he sent his only you see that picture being developed, okay? Let me give you some more pieces tonight. I think you'll enjoy this. We're going to talk about, let me go back. We're going to talk about the tabernacling God. So just some more pieces. I'm going to give you three more pieces. And then next week we'll put it all together, exegete the book and have it make some sense to us. Tonight we're going to talk about the tabernacling God. Because a large part of the book of Exodus talks about the construction of a... Of a um, what can I say, uh, a house that the Bible calls a tabernacle. And we're also going to talk about God's principles because in the book of Exodus, we encounter the laws of God. More than just the Ten Commandments, we're going to talk about God's judgments and his commands. And then we're also going to see the evolution of God's priesthood. And we're going to understand what that means. But let's talk first about this. Let's talk about God's pavilion. And by talking about God's pavilion, we're talking about God's dwelling place. So now I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to take you all the way to chapter number 40. So they walk through the wilderness. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're out of Egypt. And God stops them in the wilderness. There's a little bit that I could say there between chapter 15 to chapter number 18. There's this dynamic of the journey where the needs of the people begin to exhibit themselves and of course there's some sort of issues that go on around food around water and around safety and that i think that little piece there is very also very important what do we do on the journey when those basic needs are challenged and how do we respond to god when there's seemingly no water i'm going to say seemingly because there is water it's just up to god to provide it and then he provides it. But what do we do when it appears as if those basic needs are not being met? Food, water, safety. And we see God begin to provide, even though they are not that faithful when the need arises. Chapter number 19, they come to Mount Sinai. And it's there that God stops. And something happens in the book of Exodus. There's a manifestation of God called a theophany. It's a, it's a, temporary manifestation of God, something that they've never seen before. God manifests himself on top of the mountain. There's a lightning, there's thunder, loud noises, there's fire. And Moses warns the people because God tells him, do not touch this mountain. Tell the people, put some fence around. If they come and touch the mountain, even if the animals come, they're going to die. But yet they can't touch the mountain. But what does God tell Moses? You can come up onto the mountain and I will speak to you. Moses goes up onto the mountain, disappears in this great cloud of darkness and they don't see him again. And then out of the mountain, God begins to speak to them. Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. And it begins to echo in their ears and he speaks to them what, what the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. And after God finishes speaking, they tell Moses, we don't want God to speak to us. It's just too much for us to take. You communicate the rest to us and God invites them up for more instructions. It's in Exodus chapter 25 that God gives Moses some explicit instructions for building a tabernacle or a house. So let's look at them because it's God that says to Moses, I want you to build this house on the earth 
according to the pattern that I'm going to show you. So you can't make it up out of your head. I'm going to give you the precise measurements. I'm going to tell you what furniture to use. I'm going to tell you what materials to use. I'm going to describe it, and your job is to replicate it according to how I've described it. So here's a point in the scripture where you see that God is extremely detailed and that he does have what a punctilious nature. It matters if it's five feet or six feet. Did you understand that about God? It matters. We may say, it doesn't matter, matter. Six and a half, five and a quarter. God tells Moses it has to be this, has to be this. It has to be facing this way. Has to be made out of this material because everything is communicating a message. So with God, listen to this, there is precision. I tend to believe, I don't know if everyone believes me, that when we do ministry, it should also be done with precision. I tend to think that. I don't know if everyone agrees. They say, well, you don't have to do that. You know, God understands. But the book of Exodus does not teach anything like this. Here are some um, images. I'm just going to give you some images of the tabernacle. Most of you have seen this before. This is what it would have looked like after Moses had finished it and then set it up. So there's both the construction of it and then there's the erecting of it. So even after all the pieces have been set up or finished rather, Moses now has to then do what? Set it up. And even in the setting up of it, there's an order as to how he's to set it up. What goes in first, what goes in second, what goes in third. And when he is finished, watch this closely. When he is finished, then God fills the house with his glory. Glory then is an indication that all things have been done well. So listen, this is my position. If we don't see the glory of God in the latter body of Christ, there's some stuff that we're doing. And we're not doing things according to a precise order. Sometimes we need to stop praying and we need to start looking at what it is that we're doing. Because you might be praying and missing the precision of what God wants to do. And all of a sudden you're frustrated because God has not manifested, manifested his glory. So things like this. It's got a, 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 like a, a fence all the way around it. There's a gate to go in. You can see that there's an altar there. There's another uh, laver for washing and then they go into a smaller compartment. Now, properly taught, the small compartment that has the red and the blue, that's actually the tabernacle. Properly taught. But in most cases, we teach the whole thing as the tabernacle. But in its purest sense, that's actually the tent that Moses or Aaron rather would meet with God in. Let's look at another image of, of this. This is what it would look like if the smoke was on top of it. It's covered. You can see the design of the gate, the design of the veil. Get an idea of the priest that would be serving inside the gates. This one is another rendition of the tabernacle. And what I wanted to convey was the tabernacle sat in the midst of all their tents. So around the tabernacle, all of Israel pitched their tent. And God then was in the midst of them. Okay, so he could not be on the outside. He is the middle and all Israel revolved around God. Later in the book of Numbers, God is actually going to tell them, listen to this, where they can pitch their tents according to their tribes. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? 
that God can tell you, watch, where you belong around him. And you can't say, well, I've got some good friends over there in the tribe of Judah, but even though I'm from Benjamin, I'm going to hang out with those guys. The Benjamites are on this side because where you pitch is also connected to how you march. You see that? So when the time comes for us to get up and to go into promise, everyone has a, a specific order of marching, a specific order of getting up, and a specific order of marching. Even the priests had a specific way that they had to march and how they were to take down and set up the tabernacle. Extremely detailed, extremely orderly, and perhaps God is a God of order. Perhaps. I don't know what you think about that. Perhaps. There's a possibility that all things can be done decently and in order. This is a glimpse of what the inside might have looked like. And specifically, we're in, we're going to get there. We're in the holy place. There's the high priest in his garments. Of course, his garments are actually, again, designed by God. He cannot make his own garments. God will tell Moses how to design his garments. And then he has to follow that pattern. He would walk into this place. Notice that those creatures on the curtains are designed to look as if they are seraphims or cherubims. Because the idea here, which is, what is conveyed is when you enter this place, listen to this carefully, you've left earth and you've actually entered heaven. That's the idea. So in this place, because remember, you're going closer and closer to God, which means you're leaving the natural world and you're moving now in the spirit world. So everything is designed to sort of give you the impression that you're moving in, in what I would call heavenly places. And so you would see things like the candle, the seven-branch candlestick that's always burning, made out of pure gold. There's the table that would, the bread would be placed on. I, I believe the, the loaves would be 12 loaves, one loaf for each tribe. And then that would be the golden altar of incense that's burning and filling the room. And then behind those curtains would be the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would be. Okay? And again, I'm going to show you this, which is quite interesting. In the Old Testament, no matter how much you were curious, you couldn't go there. Man, I'm going to just say, I want to see. I want to see. I want to see what's back there. I need to get back there. I, I'm an Israelite too. <laughs> I, I got you. If you go back there, you're going to die. Now, you could take that for I'm not saying you can't go back there. But you could take that for what you want it to be, that God in the Old Testament puts parameters around certain things because he is not ready for everyone to access him yet. In the chronology of what he's revealing, only certain people can access him on behalf of others. Okay, in other words, the veil has not yet been opened for everyone to come in. Let's do one more image. This is, a, I guess you would say, a view from 30,000 feet looking down you can see there the east side would be the gate you come in there's the altar that you meet first that altar is made out of brass anything that goes on that altar has to die so that altar is a place of judgment and sacrifice notice it's made out of brass so whenever you see brass the bible is conveying some idea of judgment that's very significant. Anything that's described with brass, it's being judged, it's dying, 
it's being sacrificed. You also have the round laver, the blue is water. It's also made out of brass. That's the laver we spoke about that the priest stops to wash his hands. Notice it's brass again. So what's the priest doing? Every time he washes his hands, he's judging himself. When he washes his feet, he's judging himself. When he looks into the water, who does he see? So he looks into the perfect law of liberty. He sees himself and he knows whether or not by the things he's doing, is he positioned to minister unto God? Okay. And he cannot serve unless he washes himself. You go a little further, that's the tabernacle proper. Behind that first veil, we talked about the three articles, the candlestick, the table, the altar, and then the second veil, the ark, with the mercy seat, the angels folding their wings, that's where God would be enthroned. So anyone that gets to go there, they're actually, in this sense, they're now face-to-face -face with God in a manifestation. So they're really in that immediate presence, presence of God. If you do the count, there's some people that say that there are six articles. Some people say that there are seven. Seven meaning you include the gate, one, uh, altar, two, labor, three, candle, four, table, five, altar, six, ark, seven. So some people see a perfect house. Other people leave out the gate. They see six articles, man going to God. It all depends on what you want to do in terms of counting. All right? So let's, let's talk about this, this particular tabernacle. Number one, we said it was designed by God. This is important. I think this is critical. I think anytime God wants to do something, he will tell us what he wants done. I do not see in the Bible us telling God what God wants done. Do, do you agree with that? I see God telling us what he wants done. I see us complying. So this to me is another example of being led by the Spirit. God has a design. He dictates that to Moses. Moses' job is to dictate that design to the fellows that are going to be making the articles and putting everything together. Now watch this. This may sound a little controlling, but I think God is. The guy who's going to make the articles cannot say, I don't think Moses got it right. I heard him say brass, but I think gold would be better here. So what he has to learn is, as much as he's crap gifted, and he has to learn how to submit those gifts to the one who is omniscient. Did you follow that? He cannot say, my gifts make me more omniscient than God. So inherent in the design and the dictation is the idea that the builders are submissive to the master builder. Jesus is a perfect example of this because he's submissive to his father. He then says, upon this rock, I will build. But he's not building what God has not already built. Very, very submission. Submission, I think, is a missing element in the body of Christ. I do think so, on all levels. Pulpits to pews, I think submission is a missing element. And I think when you teach it, people then feel like they're constrained. But yes, there is a measure of being constrained because someone is actually telling you what to do. And without someone telling you what to do, there's nothing to submit, submit to. So that's what Exodus 25 verse 9 says. Let's move a little further. So let's call this a three-dimensional house. That's what it is. 
So we can use the word dimensions. There are three dimensions to this house, and it's a house that's covered by skins. So around the fence and on top, there's ram skins, there's badger skins, and so God uses skin to tell us that the house is actually covered by skins. And I don't think his focus is on animals. I think he's trying to teach us something about ourselves down the road. So whatever this house is, it's covered by skin. And inside are all these articles. And above all, inside is God. Three dimensions. Let's talk about what those dimensions are. The first dimension. Now what I'm doing here is I'm going from the gate in. Some scholars go from the holies of holies out. I'm going in. So if you're going from the Holy of Holies out, then the Holy of Holies becomes the first dimension. Depends on how you prioritize. I'm going in. I'm going to use three as the deepest place. So when I'm in the outer court, that place where the altar is and the laver, I'm in the first dimension of the house. When you're studying the tabernacle, then you can look at that. What, what consists of the first dimension? Well, it's outside. It's exposed to the light. It's a few dimensions away from the presence of God. So it, there's some revelation that we can get just by studying the outer court. All of Israel is allowed in the outer court if they make a sacrifice or bring a sacrifice. All of Israel can go in there. They can run around in there. They can enter his courts with and into his courts with. They can do all of that. They can stay there on the outside. The second dimension is called the holy place. That's the place that has the three articles, the table, the lampstand, and the other altar. Now you're in the holy place. Watch how it shifts. You're no longer outside. You're now inside. So you've gone one dimension deeper, and how you see things change. When you're outside, what do you see? You see daylight. Everything is visible to the eye. In the holy place now, you use a different kind of light. Use the light of the candlestick. So now the sun is not shining on this. The candlestick is lighting what goes on in here. The bread is in there and the incense is in there. You're one step closer or one step deeper. Second dimension. The reason why I like to use this analogy, it doesn't matter if you're going in or out, that second dimension stands between the third and the first. So everything in that dimension, if you teach it properly, is designed to do what? Mediate between those two. It mediates between outside and the deepest place, which is the Holy of Holies. So when you say that someone's in the holy place, they're in the place of mediation. They're standing between the third dimension and the first dimension. Here's the last one. I'm calling it the third dimension. It's the holy of holies. It's the holiest place in the house. There's only one article in there. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the interesting thing. I forgot to mention this. In the holy place now, only the sons of Aaron can go in there. Only the Levitical priests can go in there. When you get to this dimension, only one person can go in there. That's the high priest. Are you following God's mind? Everyone is outside. Some can go to the second dimension. Only one person can go into the presence of God once a year for everybody. So you see the revelation being poured out. We, at this point in scripture, 
we all cannot go before God. Isn't that interesting? At this point, we all, we may want to, we may love God, but we all cannot go because some stuff is yet unfinished. Do you see that? Even Aaron, when he goes in there, we'll talk about the priesthood in a minute, he has to be careful in there because he can only go once a year. That's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He takes blood, changes his garments, washes himself, and they tie onto his ankle a rope. And he goes in there. He goes in there with bells on himself and pomegranates, and he's making atonement for the nation once a year. The people on the outside who hold the rope are listening for what? The bells. And if the bells stop ringing, they start dragging. Do you understand that? He's dead. <laughs> in other words, something's wrong with him, and he was bold enough to go in there. God killed him. We're not going in there. We're going to drag him out. <laughs> And they did that year after year after year. Here's something else they didn't do. No priest was allowed to sit down in the tabernacle. So they had to stand up and do their service. And when they were finished, they left. They were never allowed to sit down. Because if they ever sat down, they'd be communicating the message that my job is finished. You see that? And at this point in the Bible... The work of saving us is far from finished. Now do you understand why Jesus, after he finished, what did he do? He sat down. And it's finished. So we don't have to do anything to save ourselves. We have to believe that he has saved us. And that the works are finished. That's why we don't have to bring any goats and sprinkle any blood and all that stuff. Because that high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ has finished the work and he sat down and we become the tabernacle of God. All right, so each dimension was furnished. Here's what I'm going to call the furniture. You can call the furniture levels. It's good because the furniture represents different levels in the dimension. So every dimension has a variety of levels. Do you understand that? So if I'm in the outer court, there's the level of the gate. There's the level of the altar. There's the level of the laver. So those are levels within a dimension. If I can complete the levels, I can go to the next dimension. So if I go into the holy place, there's the level of the table, the level of the, the lampstand, the level, of, and then I can go to the next dimension, and so forth and so forth. So it's furnished. It's furnished. There's furnishings in every, every dimension. We told you this in the outer court. Here's what you have. You've got a gate. You have a brazen altar. The word brazen means brass. And you also have a brazen laver. The altar is for sacrifices. Here's what they cannot do. They cannot take the incense from the golden altar and put it on that altar. They cannot take the sacrifices from that altar and put it on that altar. If they do that, they're offering up unto God strange fire. You got that? So each altar has its specific function. The altar of incense is only for incense, mixed a certain way by prescription. The brazen altar is only for animal sacrifice and specific animals that God has prescribed. And they cannot mix the two. 
And you're going to see a story when we get there in the book of Numbers chapter 10 that two of Aaron's boys thought, you know, it doesn't matter. And went in and offered strange fire and God, you know the rest of the story. And God told Moses and Aaron, don't cry for them. You don't, you don't like the Old Testament God. <laughs> He's a different kind of God than the New Testament God. He's Let's go one step further. Into the holy place, here are the articles or the levels. Golden candlestick on the left when you come in. On the right, table of showbread. The word showbread means bread of the face. Once a week, that bread was placed. It had to be fresh, sprinkled with incense. The bread could never be stale. When the week was finished, the sons of Aaron, they ate the bread and they replaced the bread with fresh bread. So there's always fresh bread. It's bread of the face, Bahnim, and they could see God. And it, that, this is actually a good place to say that this is Rema. <laughs> so when they went into the holy place, they had Rema, and then they also had this incense altar standing before the curtain, constantly burning, and all they could smell beyond the freshness of the bread, they smelled the incense of the mind filling the holy place. One more step. The Holy of Holies only had one article. Outer court has two plus a gate. Holy place has three. Watch this. The Holy of Holies only has one article. Does that make sense? And I think that's powerful because when you get into the presence of God, there's only one thing that you should focus on. There's nothing else to distract. Nothing to the left, nothing to the right. Everyone is focused on him who sits on the, on the throne. Even the angels understand what's going on there. And they fold their wings. That is where you get the idea now of watch. Whereas the holy place had candlelight. And the outer court had daylight. What do you have in the holy of holies? Talk to me. You had the glory of Shekinah light. So coming off the mercy seat was light. And that light is what Paul calls God dwelling in unapproachable light. That's what the Bible calls Shekinah light. So each dimension is lit by a specific measure of light. One can also say that each dimension has its measure of knowledge and revelation. Got that? It's the measure. So in the outer court, the knowledge that you get is the knowledge of daylight. The revelation generally is natural. In the holy place, you get the light from the candlestick and the bread. All of a sudden, the revelation is specific. And then if you can ever get there, you get full revelation from, can I say, a direct presence of God. All right, so here's the conclusion to this. This is what you're going to see in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle, the God that met Moses at Sinai, he introduces himself now to these people as Emmanuel. He doesn't say it, but we know it. What do I mean by that? He then becomes God with us. So now on the journey, they know because they will see the cloud and the pillar that God is with us on the journey. And where is he? He's in our midst. And as long as they're going on the journey, he will never leave them nor forsake them. That's a very powerful truth. He becomes, and he says that. He says, tell them to build me a house that I may dwell among them. Does that make sense? 
And immediately what I see is John 1.14. And the word became and tabernacled among us. If you want to take it one step, there's the Old Testament tabernacle. The next tabernacle after Solomon builds the temple to replace the tabernacle now that we're in a permanent spot. The next tabernacle is the person of Jesus Christ. You got that? The next dwelling place after Solomon's temple is the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the third tabernacle? Anyone want to guess? Me. You. We become the third and final tabernacle or the dwelling place of God. And everything that we've taught here, you can apply it to yourself. According to the courts, the degrees, the dimensions, everything, it exists within the human person. All right, let's go down a little further. The tabernacle's underway. They're talking, God's talking to Moses. He's telling him, get these guys ready to build it. And then while he's doing that, he also introduces Moses, Exodus 20, to some principles. And this is perhaps one of the most challenging parts of the Old Testament. How do you understand the laws, the statutes, the judgments that God gives to Moses? And people still today are arguing and discussing how do we understand these, especially in the light of the coming of Jesus. And you get scriptures like Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus said, I've not come to destroy these principles, but I've come to, to fulfill them. And Paul would say in Galatians that Christ is the end of these principles for righteousness. And there's a great divide in the body, in religious groups. How do we understand these principles that God gives or these laws that God gives to Moses in Exodus chapters 19 all the way to chapter 24. Let's talk a little bit about them. I won't do much of them until we get to Leviticus because once they're set, then God really goes into the details of these. Let's talk. The first set of principles that we see God giving, they're called the Decalogue. Most Christians would call these the Ten Commandments and they're right because in Exodus 34 verse 28, God reminds Moses that I gave you these ten words on these tablets. The word deca means ten. The word logos means words. These are the ten words that I'm going to give to you, Moses, written on stone. All right, so God gives him ten principles. You can use the word law. These are actually called mitzvah. They are commandments. And specifically, when you talk about commandments, there are two types of commandments in the Old Testament. There are, let me say, laws. They're apodictic laws. That whenever you see this word, thou shalt not, thou shall, that's an apodictic law. There's no room for movement there. It's this or nothing. But you also have something called casuistic law. If you do this, then I will do this. These blessings shall follow you if you do this. The Ten Commandments are apodictic law. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Simple. So what the Ten Commandments suggest is that there's no room for what? Debate. Thou shalt have no other gods. But what about this little one? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Honor thy father. But what if my father's a jerk? Honor thy father and I'm no room for debate. These ten principles. But they're not all that God gives to Israel. In most cases, that's what people focus on. He gives them a whole lot more than just ten commandments. Let's go one step further. He also gives them... Well, let me do this first. 
if you break them down, let's, let's see if we can remember what they are. Let's go. What's number one? Thou shalt have no other God before me. What's number two? Thou shalt not make any graven images, things in heaven, on earth, and thou shalt not bow down and worship them. What's number three? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God, Jesus Christ, <laughs> in vain. And by the way, that's not what that means. <laughs> okay. What's the fourth one? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days of the Lord, right? How many is that? Four, right? Let's do, what's five? Honor thy father and thy mother. What's six? Thou shalt not kill. What's seven? Thou shalt not commit. What's eight? Thou shalt not steal what doesn't belong to you. What's nine? Thou shalt not bear false witness against... Oh my goodness. <laughs> Quickly, the altars are open. <laughs> if you're online, the altars are open. <laughs> just, just at nine, everyone needs to say, I, I, I repent, right? What's, what, what's, what's, what's ten? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox, wife, car, watch, jeans. <laughs> Should we open? Why didn't you play? <laughs> oh. The ten. Ten. Here's what I want to say. We'll really go into this. Watch. The first principles, one to four, they seem to be vertical. They seem to have nothing to do with the person beside me. Fair? Thou shalt have no other gods. That has nothing to do with me. Thou shalt make no... That has nothing to... Thou shalt remember that, that has really nothing to... The first four are vertical. God to man. Fair? This is interesting. And I think it's four because they're universal. Everyone has to hold to these. So however you want to break them down. Monotheism. No idolatry. Know how to use the, the Lord's name properly. And know how to enter into the rest of God. Here's the second group. Those six to, to ten. Honor your father. Don't steal from Ephraim. Don't kill Leroy. Don't lie on Robert. Don't covet Hida's dress. They seem to be horizontal, don't they? Isn't that interesting? Six go this way, four go this way, and all ten of them make a cross. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So when you get to the New Testament, it's interesting because when Jesus is challenged about these, he says, really guys, though there are ten on stone, there are really only two that should govern your heart. And what are they? That you should love and your and upon all of these hang. He's not wrong, is he? And the real journey of the believer, because you're going to have to keep them, but the only way you can keep them is for God to do something with your heart. He's got to take them off stone and put them where? In your heart. And all of a sudden, when he puts them in your heart, he, 
he, he has to give you something else. The ability to love him and to love others to keep them. It's not just talking about I don't lie. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. Because the occasion will come when you may want to kill him. <laughs> it might not be today. And so the governing principle of all of God's commandments is this one principle, love. And the greatest of these, and the fruit of the Spirit is, it's interesting. So these ones here, the second set, they're horizontal. They're going to have to try to keep them. They're going to try. The interesting thing is, <laughs> about two days after giving these, they're building the calf. <laughs> after telling Moses, watch, all that the Lord has said, we're going to do that. And a few days later, no one puts that in context with what God had just told them not to do. They're doing what God said, thou shalt make no graven images to bow down to them. That is quite interesting. Then in chapter 21, because after God finishes speaking the Decalogue, that's when they say, let Moses talk to us. And so God says, come up Moses, I'll give you some stuff. God calls them judgments. These are called mishpat. A little different from mitzvah. Judgments are really civil laws. So now this is how you're going to behave with each other. If, if, if Leroy, if your ox gourds my son, kills him, here's what's going to happen. If, 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 if you steal something, here's how we're going to work these things out. So he gives them judgments or what's called judicial laws or civil laws to determine human rights. And that's what that word mishpat means. Human rights. And from here we get the idea that the people of God have some basic rights. This is amazing. You, you really don't find a lot of people fleshing these out to say, what does this mean and then how do we apply it today? So it's generally relegated to what area of society? The courts. <laughs> you don't really have. So This is an interesting thing. So what the courts are doing the church should be able to do. Are you following what I'm saying? So that if we're able to understand God's mishpat, we don't have to take our brother before the unjust. <laughs> you didn't say amen. You got somebody go, you, you're, are you in the court system right now? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's very, very interesting how God has these things. Because law is the prerogative of the righteous. The unrighteous has no authority meeting out law. Do you follow that? Yeah. Only the righteous, and I'm not saying our own righteousness, but those who have been made righteous have any authority to measure out law. And so God continues to remind us as we go into the new covenant that you guys should be the ones setting judgment. And if you can't judge a matter, how then are you going to stand to judge angels at the end of time? Let's keep going one step further. Ready? He gives them, I think one scholar, I think he's right, said he gives them ten commandments 
but he gives them 42 judgments. You can count them if you have the time, 21, I think, to 24, 42. By the time we go several centuries down, the Jewish rabbis, priests, and elders have come up with 613 more. You see how interesting that is? He never gave them 613. He gave them 42 and 10, 52 roughly. By the time Jesus comes, they've got 600 mitzvah laws. If you go to Mark chapter 7, you can read all of it, verses 1 to 13. They ask Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Because they're supposed to wash their hands when they come from the market. And these guys are eating uh, bread with unwashed hands. They're doing something wrong. And what does Jesus say? In vain you teach for commandments the traditions of men. Because that was one of their laws. That when you went to the marketplace, the possibility was there that a demon would jump on your hand. They believe that. The scribes believe that. And so when they went to eat bread, because a demon could be on their hand, where would the demon end up? <laughs> and Jesus reminds them, nothing on the outside makes you unclean. Everything on the inside coming out is what we need to measure. Okay, let me prove it to you. This is how you get churches and ministries today that have a litany of rules that tell you that if you don't do these things, you can't access God's presence and he's not pleased with you. So if your skirt is not a certain length, if your hair is not a certain way, if you wear this, if you don't wear this, if you go here, all of a sudden we've added, and guess what we've missed when we add? The one thing that's missing in most of these environments is the love factor. Am I right? I know I'm right. I was born and raised there. It's the one thing that's missing. All these do's and don'ts. But you find that people don't have the ability to love the way they're supposed to love. Even though, watch, they look the part. And God is not concerned about us looking the part. Though he doesn't mind a good presentation. He's concerned with us, watch, being the part. There is a difference. Every now and then, he will throw people that don't look the part, but who are the part, in front of you to see what you do. And if you're not careful following mitzvah, you say, God's not with them. Let's keep going a little further here. He also introduces them beyond these statutes and judgments and commandments. He also teaches them principles of giving. In fact, that's how they build the tabernacle. Do you remember in the book of Exodus, uh, let's say, verse chapter 12, he tells them, when you're going out of Egypt, I want you to ask the Egyptians to give you gold, silver, all their jewels, and I'm going to give you favor, watch, and you're going to spoil the Egyptians. But he didn't tell them why he was giving them these treasures, did he? When they get in the wilderness now, God says, I need it. And they say, watch, gladly we'll give it. Because we have the memory of what you've done for us. And unless you had brought us out, we wouldn't be here. And unless you had given us favor, we wouldn't have these things. One of the greatest travesties you're going to see in the Bible is that when Aaron builds the calf, he takes what belonged to God, the gold that they were wearing, the earrings that they had in their ears, and he used that to construct another God. And so God says, I'm going to need this 
to build the tabernacle. And he gives them a specific way to do it. Watch closely. He says to them, watch. Here's the first principle. Make sure that you take from those who are willing. Only take from the people who are willing. Now, this is beautiful. I love this portion of the scripture. Because whatever we say about them, they were so excited about being out of Egypt that no one said, I don't want to give. When you get to the place where they do give, Moses has to do what? What I pray, whatever happened in this ministry. Moses says, Val, stop. We don't need... Because we're... And scholars have said that I think the number is the tabernacle was in the billions if you were to do it in today's economy. And they decided to build that kind willingly to God. But not only is it willing, watch, it's also by prescription. So God says, those who are willing, I want you to take these specific things. I need ram skin. I need badger skin. I need brass. I need gold. I need specific things from people who are willing. So can God ask you for specific things? Yes, he can. Does God expect you to be willing? Yes, he does. And there are times when he allows you to tell him what you're going to give. And there are times when he will say, I need this specifically And the criteria is, I'm willing God. This is one of the highlights of the book of Exodus in that for once in the Bible, an offering is taken and there's no attitudes. I'm very serious. There's no attitude here. Everyone seems to be willing. Later on, I think chapter 34, Moses says, we have more than enough. Command the people to stop bringing. That's a phenomenal place to be. And of course, that's what I mean. 36, there it is. Giving by abundance. They give so much. I tend to believe that it's because they're just so enthralled with being brought out of Egypt. They're willing to give God anything in that moment. And Moses has everything he needs to build the tabernacle. So far, so good, everyone. Give me an amen in the sanctuary. All right, all right. Just to wake up a little bit. Let's finish this last part. Let's talk about God's priesthood. This is another piece that's important. Because he's going to introduce a priesthood here that I think it's important to teach. He doesn't have a priesthood, but he's going to introduce one in just a few moments. Here's what he says to them in chapter 19. He reminds them, now watch this closely. He reminds them that all of them are priests. So every single, watch closely everyone, every single Israelite is a priest unto God. Follow that? So we have to deliver ourselves from Catholicism that says, and we then let it bleed into our Protestantism, that certain people are in ministry and others are not. That does not exist in the scriptures. What you will find in the scriptures are ministers for the sanctuary, and I like to use this phrase, ministers for the field. But people today call it the marketplace. But everyone in Israel is a priest unto God. Then Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that ye are a royal priesthood. So watch, this idea that you ordain me to ministry and if I'm not ordained, I'm not in ministry, that's not biblical. Agreed? You can ordain me to a specific ministry, but the moment I'm a believer, I've entered the priesthood of God. So now I'm going to figure out how do I be a minister in the wider marketplace. 
And that's something that we've got to teach people. How, using a vocation, for for instance, how, how do I be a minister at the bank? How do I be a royal priest in that environment where I become, watch, a mediator between God and man? And I think if we did this well, you would see that our local ministries would grow because the priesthood of God would be in all the earth. Challenges most of our minds have been framed to think, Pastor, you're in ministry, uh, you're in ministry, I'm not in ministry, I go to work. And God knows nothing of that. He says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. So all Israel is a mediatorial nation. The farmer goes out there to minister in the field. The fisherman goes out to minister in the field. The artificer in brass and gold, but he's in ministry. And the Levite in the sanctuary, everyone is in, in ministry. So watch this, brothers and sisters. If you take what I'm saying, you don't really need this whole idea of I need to go to someone who's in ministry to pray for me. Hmm? Because I cannot mediate for him who I don't have access to myself. So if I'm a priest and I'm mediating for him, it presupposes that I have access to him. How can I mediate him to others and I don't have access to him? Then this is what the Protestant Reformation brought about. It's called the priesthood of all believers. That every believer is a priest. The Catholics have done damage here. Sorry, my brothers. They've done damage because we've taught and we then buy into it that there's a group that's in ministry, a group that are priests and fathers and cardinals, and there's another group that's out there. We call them, watch, lay people. You heard that expression? The lay people. So that's the first thing. The whole nation is a nation of priests. Now, specifically, within the nation, there are 12 tribes that comprise the nation. Here's what God is going to do. He's going to pick out a tribe for service in the tabernacle that Moses has just built. So now he's going to designate one out of 12. One could say it's a tithe, if you will. I don't know if it's exactly right. But he's going to take a tribe, and he's going to gift them to serve in the tabernacle. And that tribe is going to be the Levites. And what he's going to do, this is the foundation of sanctuary ministry. And he's going to show Israel as a nation of priests how to take care of those who are directly taking care of my house. And he's going to teach them that you priests out in the field, bring for the priests in the sanctuary. Because they're not out in the field. And you priests in the sanctuary, if the field priests need something, they'll come to you. If they've sinned out there, they're going to bring a sacrifice into you. You're going to do something to God for them. They're going to bring something from the field for you. And that's how God took care of. Can I show you something? Whatever you think of this. Do you know that the government works on this principle? Did you all know that? That that's why the government is called the ministry of. And the person in position is called the minister of. And who pays their salary? You do. (laughs) Can I go one step further? Do you ever argue about Doug Ford's salary? Do you ever say, I'm not paying his salary? Here's what they do. They don't ask you to be willing. It's called your taxes, not your tithes. Do they say, well, you don't have to pay tax if you don't agree with the policy. 
He said, well, the reason why I'm not paying the taxes is because I don't believe in their policy on road transportation. And until that policy changes, I'm not paying no taxes. And then a police cruiser shows up at your house. <laughs> then they take you down to the jail and you decide when you want to pay your taxes. The principle comes from God. And that they, and they're using it. And they tell you that they're servants of the people. They're the ministers of. And they've taken the principle from Here's the greatest travesty that I've seen in the body of Christ. I will tell you, hear me. I think we've fallen flat in this area. I do think we've fallen flat. And in areas where we haven't fallen flat, we argue about, well, why do we got to pay pastor? Why do we got to pay these people? Why don't the elders just volunteer? And guess what? Do you know what God did? There was a time in Israel when the Israelites failed to bring stuff in. And the Levites didn't want to starve. They went out and started plowing their field and God cursed the nation said that's not how I set it up so I tried to tell people I said listen if you're going to serve in our ministry you shouldn't be serving in the field and in our ministry when you are finished in the field because that's not consistent with the scriptures and then it would force us to find people who are really designated to serve in a particular area and allow others to serve in their callings and not just drop by and help us out when they've got free time. And God does not implement the principles that we're, or the practices that we're implementing. Can you imagine? Just let me go a little, five minutes more over eight o'clock. Can you imagine me? I'm in the tribe of Judah, but I want to serve at the altar. I, I, I'm a, watch, I'm available. I'm free after five to offer sacrifices at the altar. Can you imagine that in the Old Testament? I'm available. I'm not doing anything. I'm not about anything. And I put my hand up and then Moses says, oh, you're available. Come in. God would kill me. Because I'm out. Watch. This is the mind of God. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. So if I'm not where I'm supposed to be, I'm out of place. Watch. Serving a God that's never out of place. And here's where I frustrate God because when I'm not where I'm supposed to be, he will not flow through me. So I'm actually just a placeholder. But because he's a God of order, he is not flowing through me. So all of a sudden, the work becomes ineffective even though you've got a body there because it's not something that's done orderly. So this is the tribe. Let's go a little... So within the tribe now, what God does is... He actually chooses a family from within the tribe of Levi. So he will go to Aaron and his family and he will say to Aaron, I want only your sons now to occupy the office of priesthood for the sanctuary and the high priest will be your firstborn son, Aaron. So from you to Eleazar onward, it's generational. And your immediate sons will be the priests that serve Eleazar or I. The rest of the Levites, they will have other duties and responsibilities, but I'm focusing on your house, Aaron. Aaron becomes the high priest. His boys become the priests that are responsible for the sacrifices. And the rest of the Levites are shoveling ashes, setting up, moving tents, and all that stuff. And thus you have what's called the Levitical priesthood. David is going to develop that later when he's going to choose singers. So the Levites then become the worship leaders, the worshipers, 
all those kind of things. They become security guards in the temple. They become porters in the temple, ushers, if you will, all from one tribe. So watch this. Judah does not do worship in the temple. Judah does not do worship in the tabernacle. Only the Levites are commanded to serve in the tabernacle or the temple. Judah goes out to the field like all the other tribes to do what God has called them, called them to do. Again, Aaron is gifted for high priest. He is the high priest, the one that's going to go in once a year. His next son, firstborn, will take that when he dies. We know that to be Eleazar, so forth and so forth and so forth. Okay? Perhaps this is God showing something about generationalism. Person number one that I spoke about, I'm almost through the high priest. He then, according to this priesthood, he enters the Holy of Holies. It's really his main task. His main task is to keep himself. Of course, he's going to do other things. But his main task throughout the year is to prepare himself for this great high and holy day. So he keeps himself sanctified. He keeps himself pure until this one day when he goes. Because what he's doing there, here's the picture. He's carrying all of Israel. Where? On his chest. Because they're there according to those gems. So he's carrying them on his heart. All the nation before God. So his responsibility transcends his house. Transcends his children. Every Israelite is being carried into God's presence. If he messes up, the nation is in jeopardy. If he fails in that moment, the nation fails in that moment. One for the whole nation has been chosen out to go before God once a year. That's Aaron, the high priest. Person number two, the priests and the Levites serve either in the outer court or the Holy of Holies, depending on the level of priesthood. Most of the Levites did menial things like Obviously, somebody has to get rid of the animal remains, get rid of the ashes, change coals, get incense ready. There's a lot of duties. And then the priest would actually take the sacrifice for you, lay hands on it, lay hands on you. So everyone has specific duties relative to the functioning of the tabernacle. Here's one more thing I would show you that I think is powerful. Again, I think we've fallen down. The tabernacle was never closed. That's a very powerful thing. So what God did was, when he took that entire tribe, he also made sure that they, their shifts were 24 hours a day. So they were on shifts, or they had lots, and the tabernacle was always opened. And when David, through Solomon, built the temple, the temple was never closed. Get that? Right. So the hospital has us beat. The fire department has us beat. The police officers have us beat. And in some cases, the grocery stores have us beat. And Tim Hortons. Hmm? Because we tell people, like, let's say this is, we know we're the church, but let's say there's a place where people come to, to receive something. And this is the place. We tell them that, well, we're open on Sunday. Um, we're open on Wednesday. And in some places, by God's grace, some ministries are able to open throughout the week. But if you think about it, at a certain point, lights go out. But here's what you've got to ask yourself. Because the lights go out, does that mean life stops? And does that mean that people's needs... If I were the devil, if I were the devil, I'm not. If I were the devil, I would strike when the doors of the ministry closes. That's what I would... I would drive you crazy when the lights go out. 
because you have no one that you can turn to now. Maybe you can go to God for yourself, but you certainly don't have the strong support of the community. That's another thing that God had placed in my spirit. I don't know if everyone bought into that, that we should be working towards a position where ministry is available to people 24 hours a day. It's called an emergency room. And then the last one, all Israel again permitted in the outer court through sacrifice. Here's a principle again. You don't come into God's presence unless there has been a sacrifice or you are willing to sacrifice. So one of those two, either there's been a sacrifice. In the New Testament, we know Jesus has paid the sacrifice. We can come. But I would say that if you want to go to another level, now be a sacrificial person. And then God welcomes us into his presence when we are sacrificial. So let every man and woman present their bodies a living sacrifice. The presence of God is really not for people who are not sacrificial. It's for people who have sacrificed and willing to lay down their lives. And then the last thing, two more points. Told them what garments to wear as priests. He made them for them. Moses had to then design it. And God said, it's going to be for two things. When Aaron puts on these garments, they're going to be for glory. And the idea there is that when you look at Aaron in all his glory, you're going to see something about God. So everything points to God, whether it's his heart for people by putting the names on the chest or the crown that's on his head or the ephod that he wears of blue. Everything tells you that this man represents God to us and God comes through this man to us. And the last point, then we're we're finished here. His garments were also for beauty. Two things, for glory and beauty. means whatever God is doing, it's excellent. It's beautiful. In fact, the Bible teaches us that, right? He beautifies the meek with salvation. And so when you look at what God is doing in someone's life, it doesn't mean that there won't be challenges or what God is doing in a ministry. It should have an essence or an aura of beauty to it. Well, that's excellent. That sounds good. That looks right. That's done right. That's done well. If I go off on a tangent for a moment, I will tell you that I think that when people are serving in ministry, I don't think that they should just put on anything, act anyway, speak anyway, because you should be able to see somewhat of God when ministry kicks in. That's what I believe. And people should look at that, and they should be in awe of how well it's done and how beautiful it is done. Kind of like when, be it the Pope or someone from the royal family comes to Canada and we pull out all the stops and the horses start riding a certain way and everyone's in order. And, you know, people just don't say whatever because royalty is here and we are hosting. It looks beautiful. You're amazed at what you see. I think the same thing is true when it comes to the kingdom of God. So those are the three things. I think I'm done. Ah, sorry, one more. Sorry, one more. Chapter 32. This is the last one I think it is. You'll find in chapter 32 that there are practices that God will judge priests for. And this is the whole building the golden calf and behaving a certain way that's not consistent with all that he's told them. They're beautiful. They're orderly. He's with them. He separated them. Everyone has a place. And then just for a moment, they lose focus. Forget that Moses is coming back down. Build the calf. And that's a pretty horrific scene because God does some serious judgment in that moment i think about 30 32,000 people die in an instant and the levites are out there I, I just can't envision this the levites are out there killing other israelites with swords 
by killing. Because Moses said, who's on the Lord's side? Come, take your sword and start. Goes to the camp and they start killing, killing and blood is running. It's not just the golden calf and blood is running. Israelites are crying. And you, you think about that. That would mean that brothers are actually killing brothers in that moment. These are practices that plague the priesthood. And so God would give them a little bit of a heads up. You can't be a priest and engage in certain things at the same time. All right? But he's a gracious God and he forgives. And they they start over again. That's all I want to tell you for tonight. Remember, we looked at God's pavilion. That's a piece of the book. We looked at God's principles. That's another piece of the book for priests. And then we also looked at God's priesthood. And we're going to marry all of that together next week. And then one more week, I'm going to do something where I'm going to show you how all of these things sit nicely and then show you what the whole book is really all about. All right? Uh, the microphones are open for any questions on what we discussed tonight. If there are any questions, why don't we take, uh, we've got 20 minutes. We can take some questions at this time. All right? And we're also taking questions online through the chat as well. Questions, anyone? All right, questions are coming here. And over here. And I believe the microphones are on already. Yes, sir. Good evening, Pastor. Yes. Thank you for the, the message, uh, the, the teaching. Um, I'm just looking at the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the... Because a, a very significant part of the Old Testament is the priesthood of God. Yeah. Uh, when we look at the correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, trying to place the priesthood of God in the New Testament becomes absolutely significant. Uh, because first and foremost, when we look at the whole picture of yeah. the tabernacle, yeah. we know that that is replaced with the, the human being. Right. So every single person now becomes that tabernacle. Yes. Um, and, and so all of what we see in the Old Testament, the representation of that dwelling place is in us. Yes. So then where is the place for the, the Levites yes. that we talk about in the Old Testament? And what is the relationship between the Levites of the Old Testament and the New Testament as it relates to their separation for the work of, right. of the priesthood? That's a very good question. Because you're right there, we become the fulfillment of the... We are that tabernacle, and God lives inside of us, and thus everyone is a priest. But we also know that there are local places where the body gathers. And so when the body gathers in a local place, even though we tend to call it the church, it's really the place, can I say, the centralized place of ministry. It's in those places, I believe, that you then begin to delineate the Levites. So, for instance, this is one of those places... Who then would serve, as it relates to, can I say, the body? Who then would serve here? And so now Paul would then say, these are places for pastors, prophets, teachers, evangelists. I would, I would assume. And so in those localized places, we can then delineate, can I say this, the New Testament Levites working in those localized places. Does that make sense? And I wouldn't even call it Levites. I would actually say that we are in a different priesthood now, so we're sort of Melchizedek in, in the priesthood that we operate in. That makes sense. But also if you look at the book of Ephesians, when yes. it talks about the gifts of the prophets, the priests, the teachers, 
the scripture says there that it is for the equipping yes. of the saints yes. for their work of the ministry. Correct. And also for the edifying of the body. Correct. So when you look at it from that context, it suggests to me that every single person, like you said tonight, is in ministry regardless of where you are. Okay, so whether, whether it's in the workplace or the marketplace. Let's pause. Does everyone believe that? I think what, what we're discussing is critically important. That you are in ministry. You just have to figure out what your ministry is. What does the word ministry, we'll come back. What does the word ministry mean? It's to serve. It means to serve. So at the highest level, every one of us is a servant of God in a particular role. So we really, if you think about it, we really don't go to work. We go to serve or we go to minister. Because if we're in this covenant, the idea is, here's where it becomes interesting. We experience Sabbath. You cannot experience Sabbath and be working at the same time. And your Sabbath, no matter what anyone tells you, in this covenant is not Saturday. It is a place in the spirit where you are resting in God. If you are resting, you cannot be working at the same time. So the idea that I go to work, that's not the scriptures. I go to serve my world as a minister of God. And as I'm serving through these gifts, God then begins to pour back into my life, of course, through compensation and other blessings. But my real task in this world is not to make money, it's to serve the world. And as I'm serving the world, I will never tell you this, God is not ignorant of the fact that money answereth all things. He will make sure the more you serve, the more people pour back into your life through different streams. So we have to change our mindset that we get up and we go to work. And that's why a lot of Christians are miserable about what they do. Because it's not calling, it's not ministry, it's not placement, it's just duty and obligation. And so in that environment, you don't think about serving anybody at the job because you don't even want to be there much more serve you you would like to continue yes i I was just going to add to that then because if i think about it from that perspective Mm -hmm. to some degree and this is just my um my position to some degree it suggests to me that everyone who is born again to some degree is a levite and those who are not born again are are the ones who we are now serving because if we look at well, it hold from on one the, second. we don't have to say that they're Levites remember what we said everyone that's born again is an Israelite okay and we already identified that all Israel is a priesthood okay so everyone that's born again that's what Peter says we are a royal priesthood priesthood every born-again believer is a priest so we, we make up, and this is what Paul teaches, some people don't believe this, that the body of Christ is the Israel of God. Good. Circumcised, not in the foreskins, but in the heart. So we have transcended Old Testament Israelite, Israel with things on stone. God has taken, Ezekiel t- teaches us this, that those laws that were on stone, God said, I'm going to write them on the tables. That's what I'm going to give you my spirit and a new covenant I'm going to make with you, 
we become, Paul says, the Israel of God. All Israel are priests unto God. And then within Israel, New Covenant Israel, then we can demarcate now the Levites. Okay. I would even suggest to you this, which is something we should do as an exercise. If the 12 tribes are so, that distinction exists in the body of Christ. Where you have Danites, specific to what they do. You have Judites. You have all of those groups in the body of Christ according to the streams of what those, those tribes did. And we've never taken the time to flesh out, what did Judah do? What were they known for? If you go to Genesis 49, you will see the calling and the blessings of every tribe. And you will see what comes out of every tribe. That stream and spirit exists in the body today. We just haven't fleshed it out. It is also interesting that if we look at the Old Testament, mm -hmm. we, it, would, it would appear that all of the Old Testament was focused on the children of, of, the children of Israel. Yes. And so the ministration of God was really to a group of people. Yes. We don't see any reference of God, say, ministering to other tribes or giving them laws or telling them, even though we know they existed yes. and there were things because we know that God was waiting for the iniquity yes. of the yes. Amorites to be full. Yes. So we know that there were things going on there, but the focus of the Old Testament was primarily yes. on the children of Israel. That's right. And if that is supposed to be a shadow of what we're seeing in the New Testament or a type of what we're seeing in the New Testament, it then tells me that the whole of the born-again Christian is really now that Israel that God was ministering And the to. apple of God's eye. But here's the thing, though. When God sets his affection on you, he also places his responsibilities on you. That's the thing that I think people are missing. So when God says, this group I'm focused on, that focus is really, I'm preparing this group to be my representation to all the other groups. And through this group, that's why Israel was told, you're going to be a light to the nations to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And what did they do? If this was a ball, what did they do? They dropped the ball. So you know what God is doing in the Old Testament, which you see it every now and then? Though he's focused on Israel and he's dependent on them to do certain things, he is not exclusively sold out to them if they fail. Right. So he's already talking to other groups. So one day he's going to tell them, Cyrus, who is a Persian, That's right. is my anointed. That's right. And I have anointed him to open the two-leaf gate. That's right. In other words, watch this. We must never think that if we don't do the job, it won't get done. If we do the job, we get the reward. But if we don't do the job, that's why Jesus makes us an analogy. If you don't say nothing to me, these rocks, these stones. So what the church, vow, I think, should realize is we become the apple of God's eye, but we're responsible for the nations. So then Jesus would put it like this. Ye are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if the nations don't know God, then something is wrong with our watch. But here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to fall down on my watch and then send the nations to hell. Do you follow what I'm saying? If I fall down, God is going to get a word to them one way or the other. But he wants you and I to go. Thank you, Val. That was great, by the way. Laverne? Thank you. Um, since we are a kingdom of priests, yes. that is every born-again believer, 
So I have two questions. Yes, I'm listening. What does it look like? What does it look like when a church operates from the vantage point of every believer being a priest? What Proverbs does that look like? Twenty-nine, verse two. If somebody wants to find it, if I'm right, it looks like this: when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. And so, part of that picture is seeing godly people in places of authority, making decisions, establishing policies, and directing the nature of life towards God's destiny. That's a part of what it looks like. It looks like people actively engaged in society and doing it for the glory of God and the good of humanity. It also looks like Isaiah two and verse two, the mountain of the Lord's house being established in the top of the mountains. And all nations flowing up. You said it best. You didn't say we were a church of priests. You said we were a kingdom. kingdom of priests. And so he introduces the idea that I'm really about a kingdom. And you priests, I've called you to mediate not a church service. I've called you to mediate a kingdom. My rule in societal places in the earth. That is the highest form of evangelism, by the way. The highest form of evangelism is not telling people, using our terms, "come to church," which again is another misnomer, because you're standing there as the church telling them to come to a place. It's a misnomer. The highest form of evangelism is when people see you in a role that's achieving the betterment of humanity, and you're doing it for the glory of God, and you're not ashamed about that. They would want to know somewhat of your God. That's part of what it looks like. I don't think I've done everything in totality, but if you also want to see what it looks like, go out to those walls and look at our vision, and you'll see another glimpse of what it is we're trying to do. Where the people of God are in key areas, and I've heard people teach me this: No, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to wait for Jesus to come. No, we're supposed to be in the educational system, directing it, giving oversight to it, introducing the mind of God into it. We're supposed to be in government, aren't we? Not supposed to be in government. We're supposed to be in entertainment, are we? Not supposed to be in entertainment, because whatever you say we're not supposed to be in, you will see society going to hell as a result of who is steering that. That's when the wicked are in authority. The problem with entertainment is that the wrong people are entertaining the world. No, the problem with government is that the wrong people are doing what? Governing. The problem with education is the wrong people are teaching. And so that's what it looks like. You can decide what mountains it is, what areas of society. The righteous—I'm going to use a term. I don't mean it in a pejorative way. They should dominate. By that I mean not some abusive way, but they should be walking in dominion in those areas, pointing people back to the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom. What He means for the earth, we don't fully understand in the body. So my next question yes. is: Did I? Did I? Yes. Thank okay. you. Okay. Um, What does it look like for the priesthood of the believer to operate within within the body of Christ? So we Psalm one thirty three. That's the problem. Pardon me. Psalm one thirty three is missing from the priesthood within. So what what needs to happen now is if we were to teach a kingdom and not these little groups and pockets of ministries, if we teach a kingdom, then remember the Levites are not divided. In the Old Testament, you're a Levite. 
You can't say, well, I'm not a Levite because you believe this. You're born a Levite. You see how you can't escape that? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with the, can I say, the internal priesthood or the sanctuary priest is that we're fragmented. Okay. That we don't work together. That we haven't consolidated the sanctuary, if, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so there's this dysfunctional approach where every Levite now is doing what's right and saying what's right in his and if you think about it now can I say one, one more thing the other Israelites are looking at the Levites like what are you guys doing I thought you were one watch tribe you see the challenge today like all who are in sanctuary ministry belong to one tribe how is it that we don't know that how is it that we can't get along like that how is it that we can't show at least the Israelites that it's one tribe? Not, not even the world. At least the Israelites that we're all on the same page. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. Can you imagine if we operated in the tabernacle like we operate today? You would have Levites at the altar not talking to each other. Right? Turning their backs on each other say, he's coming to offer sacrifice. But he's not saved. But he's a Levite. How do you do ministry and not work cohesively together as one? How do you take the collective needs of the people and in a fragmented way offer it up to God? And thus, that's part of the problem. It stems from, I believe, improper governance in the body. Yes. I think we, we are so... Can I say this, Laverne? I will never even assert that this is a problem that we can fix because it's so fragmented. It's so scattered it becomes in the eyes of God a valley of dry bones. So we can say, well, Pastor Nico, you need to do a unity conference and bring all the pastors together. That's not going to solve it. Because it's deep-seated. It has to do with denominations and decades and decades of groups being separated from each other, believing certain things, practicing certain things. Only God, in my estimation, is going to bring unity to his body. I believe that. Thank you. And I believe he's the only one that's going to chasten and chastise leaders, put down and pull up. I think it's only a God thing. Laverne, that's a very hard question you've asked, and I don't even know if I did justice to that, but those are some of the things I see that plague the priesthood. Okay? Yes, my dear. Thank you, Laverne. Hi. Uh, Hi. Thank you for that word. I really appreciate it. It was really good. And my question is, if... We are the modern-day um, tabernacle, like he lives within us, mm -hmm. and the tabernacle is a place of worship. Um, I'd say the church is a, is a modern-day uh, place of worship now. Um, in the different stages of entering into the presence of God, we see that each level mm -hmm. was a way to, like, be able to enter in yes. and receive yes. the Holy of Holies, yes. um, receive from the Holy of Holies. My question is, what do you think is stopping the church today from being able to enter into the Holy of Holies, give it each Sunday or whenever we gather? But I don't, I don't teach it like that. Number one, I don't think that the tabernacle is just a place of worship necessarily. I think the goal of the tabernacle is to teach us where God lives where God abides. And of course, wherever God is, worship's going to take place as well. But you can also believe that at some point, the Levites began to teach in the tabernacle, all those kind of things. Yes. The believer becomes the tabernacle 
And so from the outer court, how they deal with their bodies, their flesh, all the way into their mind, their heart, their will, all of those things factor in. I think some of the reasons why we don't enter in is that we don't manage those levels very well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whether it's how I govern, am I really sacrificial in crucifying my appetites? That's what that altar symbolizes. Watch this. Have I, as a believer, truly died to myself? That's the reality, because that's what happens at that altar. Do I spend time washing myself? How do I do that? I'm not talking about literal water, but am I washed daily by the washing of water, by the Word of God? Mm-hmm. Then I go a little further. What's the condition of my heart? Is my heart soft? Is God working in my heart? What's the condition of my mind? Is my mind really renewed, or do I still think the way that I always thought? And then my will, is it really beaten into a candlestick where God lights my decisions and I make none? I can't say that. I'm up here teaching and I know that sometimes I come up with my own thoughts and sometimes there's some thoughts that go through my mind and sometimes I've got some appetites. And so all of that stuff has to be factored in. That to me is the daily sacrifice of the believer that allows them to enter into what's already on the inside. So when the believer begins to work on themselves, guess what they're doing? They're going inward, not outward. They're going deeper in to where God is. So when the Bible talks about the secret place, do you know where that is now? The secret place is in us. And we have to learn how to go there. But those steps that we laid out, if you don't stop by each of those levels, those dimensions, all of a sudden, you you don't run into the Holy of Holies unwashed. (laughs) So here's the danger. You can tell people, and again, I tell, take the word church out of your vocabulary when you talk about this place. You don't run into ministry, you've lived a terrible life. <laughs> Throw up your hands because somebody said, and things begin to happen. Just won't happen for you. In the same way that if you don't focus, you just, it just will not happen for you. And if you keep doing that over and over again, you're in a routine, it becomes a, and all of a sudden, church is just, you know, worship is just, And you never really enter into what's on the inside, Mm -hmm. that deeper dimension of who you are. But again, it takes sacrifice. Watch this. If you come into God's presence and you're not grateful, you haven't even passed the gate. Did you follow what I'm saying? Enter his gates with? But I would argue that, guess what? You are the gate, so every day you give thanks. So if you don't even do that every day, what's the point of coming on Sunday? You're probably not going to do that on Sunday. So every day, this is the day. Thank you, Lord. Mm -hmm. So every day you're going into the gate. Every day, watch, you're repenting, even of things you don't know. Mm -hmm. Say, God, if perchance I've thought, I've done, I've said, misunderstood, I repent before you. You're stopping at the altar. You open that Bible and you say, wash me with your word. And then all of a sudden that word is hidden in your heart. That's bread on your table. And you say, God, shape my will. You pray, not my will. I'm struggling with these decisions, but I want to do your will. So I pull from the wisdom of Solomon and I acknowledge you in all my ways. Direct my path. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. God, give me the mind of Christ. You know how you think. I know how I think. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to yourself, Miko. Give me your thoughts. And then the more you do that over and over again, God begins to say, you know, the veil is open. You can come and you can dwell here. I would then say this finally. If every believer lived like that, they would bring Shekinah into the sanctuary. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. And when people who bring Shekinah into the sanctuary begin to worship, it explodes in the atmosphere. You see how that all works? But if everybody's all over the place, I came, I'm terrible life. What does it matter if I lift my hands? I'm still out in the outer court. Sometimes I'm not even in the gate. Can you imagine everybody living in the secret place? And then we gather here and he then plays and someone sings and we sing. And all of a sudden the glory of the latter house is greater than in the former. And in this place, God said, I'll give peace. Every single person has a responsibility to work on themselves. Oromikal being the first one. Doesn't matter what role you play in the sanctuary, in the field. Every person. Sometimes when I teach, I look in people's eyes and they're looking at me like, whatever, pastor. So that's your problem. That's your problem. But the things you're expecting to see God do, He's not going to do them. And then you're going to blame the church and blame God and where's this and where's the revival? Well, you are the living revival. I am that revival. Let every person work, watch, work what? Work out their own. What's been worked in, you got to go in and get it and work it out. So that when I ask you to stand like I'm going to ask you now to stand and we lift our hands and we begin to worship. Oh my God, the sick are healed. I t- I'm not guessing. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, the demoniacs are exercised. It watches demons cannot be where the Shekinah is. Am I right? There's no way devils can be where the Shekinah glory is. And if they are, they have to bow the knees. Lift your hands, everyone. If you're online, I hope you receive tonight. Thank you, my sister. I want to talk to you after because you led us by the Spirit to where we need to be as a congregation. We know that we're priests. We're not Catholics. We know that we're God's priesthood. We know that we're Israelites. Through the blood of Jesus, the Israel of God. And we know that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Come out, God. Come out. Let let God arise. Come on, let's go ahead, Joel. Come on, let's give him some worship for a moment. Open your mouth and work out what's on the inside. If you're at home in your room, in your office, take a moment, pause, and fill the room with the aroma of the Holy of Holies. Hallelujah. Oh, glory to God. Oh, bless the name of Jesus. Father, we welcome your presence in our lives. Let the whole earth be filled with the glory of God as waters cover the seas. Hallelujah to God. Father, anoint every priest in the sanctuary. Anoint every priest in the field. Unify the body of Christ. Break up the fallow ground in Israel. Bring your sons and daughters together now in the name of Jesus. Father, do a new thing among us. Oh God, in the name of Jesus, give us Shabbat. Give us the rest of God. 
Oh God, fill us with the Holy Ghost and with power. In the name of Jesus, I feel like praying a little bit. God, anoint your children. God, empower your children. In the name of Jesus, let the fragrance of our worship fill rooms. Let it fill boardrooms and classrooms. Let it fill parliaments and governmental halls. Let it fill the earth, God. Let it fill sanctuaries. You have the glory, God, in the earth. Hallelujah. Stretch your hands, everybody. I decree over your life that God's called you to be a light to the nations, to be his salvation to the ends of the earth. In the name of Jesus, I anoint you with my prayer to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation, a peculiar people called out of darkness into his marvelous light to show forth his praise. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. Be anointed from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet. Be placed in your purpose and calling. Be authorized to demonstrate the kingdom. By the word of my prayer, the Lord give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in the heavens. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in the heavens. I decree such authority now in the body of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah to God. Now let all the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then the earth shall yield her increase. And God, our God, shall bless us. Hallelujah to God. Give him a shout tonight, Zion. Give him a praise, sanctuary priest. Give him a praise, marketplace priest. Hallelujah to God. Oh, we thank you. Play, son, play. You're anointed to be a Levite. Hallelujah to God. Glory to Jesus. Glory to Jesus. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. Thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you. Lift your hands, everyone. Say this with me. We haven't said it in some some days. Say, I believe. I agree. God has called me to priesthood to change, to affect every life. Go and be a blessing to someone. Hallelujah.